All right, very good. That's enough being nice to each other. You can be seated. Thanks for coming today. You get extra points for your team for showing up on weather like this in April, and it's uh, the springtime in the Rockies. That's how it works, right? Jim is in the great state of Maine. I don't know what's so great about it, but you always have to say that some, for some reason. His daughter is in Boston, and uh, he will get a little bit of time with her, but he's also part of a board there for a mission organization, and so he'll be back next week. But uh, he's in and out. He's going to Mozambique. He's got a couple things going on here in the next several weeks, and so you have to put up with me. Sorry about that, but that's just how it works. Today, we're going to start this series. We came out of the series of all of the seven things that Christ had said from the cross and uh, finally got to the great celebration of Easter. I hope you had a good time Last week, I sure did. It seemed like a number of people commented on how celebratory that was. That's awesome. Now we have seven weeks between here and when we go to the amphitheater. Believe it or not, it's that close already. And uh, if you want to sign up today to help with the setup of the sound system in the snow, then uh, I'd love to have you sign up today. I know how many I'm going to get out of that. But anyways, uh, it'll be a lot of fun once we do get down there. But between here and then, this is what we're going to do. We're going to study... The hidden gems of the Old Testament. Put the next one up there, Errol. I prefer this. I wanted to call it the puny passages that pack a powerful punch. But uh, Jim wouldn't let me do that. But it, this, you guys know, you, anybody know who those guys are? Who's the little guy? Bruce Lee. A bunch of people know that. Who's the big guy? Yeah, well played, well played. Seven, four, and Bruce Lee was lucky if he was five feet. But they actually had a fight scene in a martial arts movie and uh, Jeet Kune Do is J Bruce Lee's thing, and he taught Kareem how to fight, which is crazy. But he was a little guy who packed a powerful punch, and I think it's illustrative to us of these stories. We're going to pick up seven stories, all of them in the Old Testament as we're moving along. And we're trying to glean some things out of there that connect some dots, but also give us some sense of uh, purpose and Pull some things. Okay, next slide up there, Errol. Let's talk about a few things. Here's some intro on the entire series, some goals that we have. First of all, there's, these stories were written to a culture that was unfamiliar with the one true living God. Every single one of these stories are written to people and engaged. The story is engaged with people who do not have any idea what's going on with God. Now, here's how that's relevant. We, right now, in the United States, are in a post-Christian culture, people who are unfamiliar with the one true living God. They truly are. Did you know that the Christians for the first almost three centuries were called atheists by the Romans? Did you know that? Most of their writings, literally their comments and things about these people, called them, that was just a standard procedure, to call them atheists. Why do you think that is? It's because compared to the Roman pantheon, these Christians worshipped nothing. There's nobody. And so they were in contrast, in comparison to that, the same thing that the New Testament apostles and early church fathers had to do was tell the story of God in such a way that it would cross the bridge. Those experiences, those truths, those realities would get across the bridge to people who were not familiar with that God. It happened in the New Testament. It happened in the ancient times. 
particularly the story of Exodus. I mean, it was a pickup that God kept going back to the hook of that. He would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would go back to those stories. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And they were telling that story to the people around them. The Christians did it. We can glean some things from these stories that actually help us tell the story based on not having all of the preset presuppositions that Christians have about God. Second goal, second idea. Scripture is both divine and human. Any weird faces on that one? Now, here's what I mean by that. Scripture was definitely inspired by God. It was breathed out by God. It's God's word to us. At the same time, God used average, well, maybe not average, maybe a little above average, but he used regular people to communicate. These stories have mechanisms in them that made sense in their culture. They worked for them. They were the kind of writings that people would do. Now, don't get me wrong, they're masterpieces. They are amazing works of literary art. I had the opportunity to talk to one of the professors down at the seminary about, and he, that's, this is kind of his thing. Is, and he's like, I have read the stories, Ugaritic stories, the uh, Sumerian stories, Babylonian stories, Egyptian stories, even the ancient Greek stories. There is nothing that compares literarily to the masterpieces of these stories. At the same time, God picks up the human part, puts it into these stories, and uses humans to carry it. How do you think you would have sent the scripture if you were God? Stop and think about that a second. Would you have trusted a bunch of knuckleheads like us? I don't think so. I don't think I would have. He could have like just dropped it off the, you know, dropped it in like the gods must be crazy, like Coke bottles out of the plane. He could have done that. He also could have sent it in by like jet, you know, Abdul's jet-powered camel service or something. I don't know. He could have done a whole bunch of things. What he did was use real people in real circumstances to write real stories about real events. These are not Disney movie stories. They're not made up. Some of them, parables, sometimes in there, there are made up stories to give a specific purpose. There's also poetry in there that's obviously has a lot of language that can be very emotional, but it's got a lot of truth in it. There's a bunch of wisdom in there that says, okay, here's some very specific things that this is good for you, this isn't. There's law that says, here's the boundaries that you've got set around you. But the vast majority of the Old Testament is narrative. It is stories. We're going to pick a few out. Next slide, Arrow. Third thing, verbal transmission. You realize, of course, that they didn't all have these things. You realize that. They didn't all have the internet. They didn't have, in fact, they very seldom had any books at all. Sometimes whole villages around the ancient Near East would have nothing in printed material. Maybe a few things sent in from, you know, the, the ruler or something on a piece of stone. But they had very little that was written. So what they did was transmit it verbally. You need to know this. These stories are spectacular verbal transmission-based stories. They're astounding. There are verbal hooks. There's sound hooks. There's rhythm hooks. There's chiasm. Anybody get the extra points for your team by knowing? Anybody know what chiasm is in here? 
Not a soul. All right, this is going to be fun. Chiasm is where there are comparable things at the beginning of a story, details, and they move along with comparable things that are moving towards a, a central point that's the climax. And then when you move away from the climax, these things hook back to the original things in the story. So things three-quarters of the way through are very comparable to things uh, one-quarter of the way through. And things at the beginning are very close to the things at the end. They, they mirror each other so that people could memorize them and tell them from memory. Now, we've learned a lot from the Aborigines because they have that system that they have used for centuries. And you would say, well, I've played the telephone game. I don't know if that's accurate. No, it's incredibly accurate when it's done in community. The Aborigines would find people who had a, a propensity for memorizing, for telling story with meaning and with passion and emotion and with you know, purpose and a sense of that storytelling. But if a storyteller forgot a piece... The community would speak up and say, whoa, 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 you forgot a piece right there. And they would keep the integrity of the stories over generations because of the accountability of simple community. Very workable model. And here's the fourth thing that we'd like to, to learn is this. Courage and faith in the middle of incredible suffering are at the core of almost every single one of these great stories. Courage and faith. This sense of, I mean, things are bad. Things are almost to the point where we're going to come to an end here. We may even lose the whole nation. You can think of stories. Esther, we're going to look at Esther. Daniel, different ones, places where... We could all perish as a result of this story. But because of courage and because of faith, God says, here's what happens in suffering that actually produces something that's beneficial. Now, if you think that is just an Old Testament mechanism, not at all. That carries along to the New Testament to where Christ's story comes in. And Christ's story, now stop and think about Jesus' story with me for a minute, some of the details. Didn't he have a wonderful life? Wasn't it all just rainbows and unicorns and like wonderful fancy blue days and everybody was happy and they all just got along? Are you kidding me? His story was full of all kinds of monkey business, deceit, intrigue, problems, and he ends up in the place of the, some of the worst suffering. In fact, in the time of history, the execution that Jesus had to go through is one of the worst forms of execution ever thought of by human beings. Do you think God didn't know that was coming? He sets up all of these Old Testament stories to build a chain of purpose to where Christ comes along and says, this is not about having a wonderful, beautiful life. In fact, if you came here today thinking, well, man, maybe they'll tell me some things that'll just make my life perfect and everything will go well and I'll have plenty of money. You not only have come to the wrong place, you came to the wrong book. Because the Bible has a story theme all the way through it of significant suffering but people having courage and faith in the midst of suffering and God saying there's huge value in this. Now, it goes so far that when Jesus dies, the apostles and the early church for a couple centuries literally are writing things about 
we would be the most favored and highly honored ones of all time if God would allow us to participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's how deep this runs. Why? Because they're masochists? Not a chance. It's because the, the sufferings really show what real faith is. On an average Tuesday when the sky is blue and it's a powder day, faith is easy. But when the, all the wheels come off the cart and we're literally about ready to die here, faith is hard. And it means something. It's got depth to it. it. It's the thing that we know somehow about humans. It's one of the most marvelous things about us is the capacity for courage. And these stories tell us those kind of things. I hope you pick a few things up like that. Move to the next one there if you would, Errol. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us some things. Of all the chapters that give us some information that uh, help us understand what this is about, Hebrews 10, if you have a Bible or if you want to get one of those there in front of you, we're going to look at this briefly. Everything we do is going to be briefly <laughs> because we've got, got to get through this intro and then get to Joseph. But this will take us, this passage takes us to Joseph. 10 verse 1, the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then he proceeds to say, the sacrifice, the sufferings of Christ, were not an afterthought. They're based on the stories and the premises that we have from the Old Testament, and they build to a climax at the cross. And the blood of all those goats and those lambs that were shed were just a picture of what would happen on the cross. He then moves in. Go over to chapter 11. Or right before it, actually, chapter 10, verse 35. So don't throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. Keep the courage, he says. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. This whole thing is about living by faith. The entire transaction between God and man for all of human history is where will your faith lie? But we are not of those, verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And he starts through the stories of the Old Testament, beginning with Adam. And he says, faith, 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 by faith, by faith, by faith. This is the whole point. These, he doesn't commend these guys because they had wonderful behavior or because they had good breath or because they were nice to their neighbor or because they were all just believing anybody's just, everybody's just fine and can't we all just get along. He is commending faith as the linchpin of all of these stories. So go down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Jim unpacked that and connected it beautifully last week. I hope you heard that. 
as he connected the sacrifice that Abraham had thought would go through of his own son. He connected that to what God did with his own son Christ. The difference was Abraham knew he didn't have the power to resurrect his own son, but he believed by faith God would do it. It says it right here. 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Amazing. Connects to what God did with his own son. Now look at the next one. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he bowed over the top of his staff. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's the next guy? Joseph, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. We won't even have time to begin to read much of this, but at the very end, literally the end, chapter 50 in Genesis, Joseph is saying, look, guys, it's a good thing that you're all here now as a people, that the Hebrews are here because you would not survive back in that country. The famine is too great. It's going to take some time, but you will go back from here, go back to that land where you belong, and when you go, take my bones with you. Take my mummy, pick it up out of the, the valley of the kings, and carry that rascal with you. And do you know that for 40 years, those people, when they walked out in the Exodus, for 40 years, they carried that mummy on the back of their backs and carried it and marched it all over the wilderness till they finally went into Israel and took Joseph's bones with them. Now here's his story. Go back with me to chapter 37 of Genesis. Beginning book in the Bible, all the way back at the beginning. Can't even start all these stories that go before it. I encourage you to look at them. Read these just as pieces of literary amazingness. It's worth it. But read these and hear what God is doing and connect the dots and they're astounding. 37.1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had been. Verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah, Silpah, his father's wives, and they brought a bad report about him. And you know, here it goes. A couple of things to look for in, in this story. I won't even be able to read it all, but I'm going to shoot some of it at you. A couple of things. Go ahead, Errol. First of all, this family is an ancient version of a blended family. And actually, it's a mess, is the better way to put it. There's four different wives. Two of them are sisters. Then they're handmaidens. They each have different sons. The favorite wife has sons last. Joseph is the 11th of number 12 of the sons. This is full of, I mean, all kinds of bitterness, jealousy, anger, resentment, craziness going on between all of these boys, their wives, their kids. It is, you couldn't make this stuff up. If you were writing a soap opera, it couldn't be as bad as this is. It's just the truth. It moves on, and they are a mess of a family. And nonetheless, God does his business with them. Your family qualifies. That's the good news. Second part. Let's look at the second thing. Put that up there. Pronounced contrast. You've got Jacob, 
who's a manipulator, a deceiver. He's a terrible father. Every time something comes up where he should have moved in and said, hold it right there, he never does anything. He sits back, he makes fun of them, he points fingers, he flips it over, he's a terrible dad. Then you've got Joseph, who somehow, raised by this father, comes out with the most integrity of just about anybody in the human history. Nothing is written down about Joseph that amounts to sin. The worst you can get is the fact that he's a spoiled brat when he's a kid, but that's not even really his fault. Jacob gives him a coat, you know, the Technicolor dream coat, right? You know about that. He gives him the coat. Do you think that was a benefit to him? His brothers just hated him more for it. Like, thanks a lot, Dad. Thanks for the coat. Now they all know me. Thanks. Right? It goes on. Then you've got Reuben, the oldest son, who never makes a really good decision. He's kind of like, I don't know what I should do. I could probably go in and have sex with one of my other mothers who's not really my mother. That would work, right? That story's in there. There's all kinds of... Jacob never trusts Reuben. And in fact, at the very end, when he's talking through the, the last, dis, you know, kind of the dispensation of what was going on, he just tears the, the feet right out from underneath Reuben. Then you've got Judah, who is, at the beginning of the story, the worst rascal of them all. He's telling them, okay, let's... Here's the deal. The the brother comes out, Joseph, with the coat, the Technicolor dream coat. He comes 50 miles north to find these guys. As Joseph is walking across the field, they start scheming to do what? To murder him. Now, I don't know how bad your brother treats you. But if any of you had your brother literally come up with a murder plot, I hope not. Don't raise your hand if it's true. I hope you have not had to deal with that. He's walking across the field, and they're going, we could kill him. We could do it. We'll take his coat. We'll tear it up. We'll put blood on it. We'll take it back to dad, and we'll get rid of this dirt bag once and for all. Let's do it. Literally. But Judah says, no, here's a better plan. There's money to be made. (laughs) So instead of just killing him, do you guys hear that, the clanging of those bells? Those are camels. That's a caravan of Midianites. We could sell him for slavery. Let's sell our brother. Now, you may have had somebody in your family try to murder you. I hope nobody has tried to sell you into slavery. But this is what Judah does. He pulls it off. And it says right after that, they all just sit down to have dinner. Like it doesn't even affect them in any way. Unbelievable story. The story goes then in a pause. Meanwhile, back at the farm... Judah's two oldest sons have both died and passed on a wife, Tamar. That's the way things worked, where the the wife is supposed to go to the next brother. Gets to the third brother. Judah says, no chance I'm putting her to this brother because probably everybody she touches dies. So not going to do it. Sends her home to her dad. He promises her that he will give her to him someday when he gets old enough. Never happens. She hears, she's quite a ways away from the ranch, she hears Judah's coming up for a visit. When Judah is coming along, she decides, here's what I'll do. I'll dress like a prostitute and stand at the side of the road. She knows her father-in-law pretty well, by the way, at that point, right? As he's coming along, he says, let's have sex. So they do. She asks him for a a little token. I don't need your money. Just need like a piece of your staff, a, a cord, your signet ring. 
that somehow didn't dawn on him what was going on. He still doesn't know who she is. She gets pregnant by her father-in-law. They're going to try to kill her because of her sin. But she says, all I want to know is, if you would find the guy who owns this stuff, then uh, maybe you won't want to kill me. Judah's like, oh yeah, that's mine. Now, the, wor- the thing just gets worse. Meanwhile, Joseph is sold into slavery, but the place where he show- goes in Egypt is the, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. So he goes in there. He's, he's successful because he's just doing well. He's just minding his own business, being, just in, having integrity and doing things right. And it comes along then his, his, excuse me, his master's wife starts hitting on him, wants to have sex with him. He day after day resists her. Finally, she makes up a story about him, gets him thrown into prison for attempted rape that he never even does. In the process, he's, he's like, okay, I guess I'll just I, I go to prison. I don't know what else to do. He does the right thing, does the right thing. Not long after that, Pharaoh has two servants of his, cup, baker, ba- uh, cup bearer and a baker. He puts them in jail. They have dreams. Joseph remembers, I have the capacity to get information from God about dreams, just like my dad did. And so they tell him his dreams. He tells them what's going to happen. I love this little literary thing. He tells the cupbearer, you will go back because Pharaoh will lift up your head and take you back into his court. When he talks to the baker, he says, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree. And literally, so that's what happens. Pharaoh brings the one back. He kills the other one. The guy goes two years, he forgets all about what's going on. Joseph's 30 by this time. If you remember at the beginning of this, he's 17. He's still just a kid. He's 30. He's sitting in prison one day, minding his own business, has has been forgotten by everybody, sold into slavery by his brothers, but still doing the right thing, having the right attitude about it, trusting God, minding his own business in prison, And a guard comes and gets him and says, Pharaoh wants to see you. He doesn't know what's going on. Pharaoh has had a couple of dreams that are pretty powerful. Nobody can interpret them. The the cupbearer goes, hey, I remember this dude that answered my questions. I remember that. That happened once. And so they go get him. They bring him up. Pharaoh tells him the, the stories. Afterwards, Joseph says to him, well, I don't have the capacity, but God can answer your questions. God gives him the purpose and the meaning of these dreams. And in 30 seconds, he goes from being in the worst possible circumstances, I mean, could die tomorrow in prison, to being the second most powerful guy on the planet. You can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. What kind of a rags to... Literally, those who are into literary things say... These stories, and in particular, that rags-to-riches story is one of the foundational elements for stories ever since. And if you think about it, how many stories have you seen where the guy is at the bottom and he's brought to the top? It was built off of this story of Joseph. It's astounding. Meanwhile, (laughs) the the famine gets worse. His brothers are back in Canaan. They're like, we're going to starve. Let's go to Egypt to buy some grain. They walk into the room where Joseph's sitting on the throne to sell the grain. And in walk his brothers. And he has unbelievable immediate recall to go, I know who those rascals are. They have no idea who he is. 
He proceeds then to ask them some questions, sell them grain. They go back and forth with Simeon stays. Benjamin has to come back. There's silver in the bags. It's like an unbelievable thing as it goes back and forth as Joseph is trying to figure out what has really happened while I've been gone. In the background, it makes these little comments about what's happening inside of Joseph. For instance, when his brothers walk in the first time, it says immediately he remembered his dreams. He remembers the dreams he had when he had the, the shiny coat on all the way back as a 17-year-old. And God connects the dots for him. And instead of treating them poorly, you realize he had the authority to literally just cut their heads off right there. But instead of doing that, he says, huh, maybe grace is in order here. Eventually, the brothers, everybody comes up to Egypt. And when Judah and the boys finally come back, Judah makes the turn where he goes from being a scoundrel like he has been his whole life. And he finally says to his brother Joseph, you know what? God knows what he's doing here. And we are responsible we're responsible for a, a lot of really bad decisions in our family. I want to step up to the plate and take responsibility and do what's right for my family. What do I have to do to do that? Joseph cannot take it anymore. And he says, I am your brother, Joseph. And of course, you can imagine their reaction. They're like, he's going to kill us. He just, no. Three times in the next four verses, Joseph says to them, God sent me here. Not you. God sent me here so that thousands would be saved. Does that sound familiar at all to anybody? God sent a son so that thousands would be saved? These are totally intertwined stories all through history. Had Joseph anywhere along the line been unfaithful, the story falls apart. Who even knows what would have happened then? Who knows? He's faithful. He trusts. He has courage. He brings his brothers to Egypt. And at the very end, he tells them, when the whole crew goes back someday, because I'm going to die here, take my bones back. Take them back. It's an amazing mechanism, a human story, of incredible twist, turn, intrigue, uh, lies, deceit, that God takes the whole thing and gives Joseph the courage to have the faith to believe that this is God at work. Unbelievable. Esther, a repeat of the story. You'll see it in a couple of weeks. Next week, when we go through Job, you'll go, Job didn't seem to have as good of an attitude about it as Joseph did. <laughs> And yet, God proves his point. He communicates truth. He ultimately, and here's the bottom line of all of these stories, he ultimately redeems out of all of this whole mess of suffering, of unbelievable amounts, copious amounts of sin. God redeems, does his plan, accomplishes, brings purpose to everything in it, everything in it, it's unbelievable. I encourage you as we continue along in these journeys, 
read. This is chapter 37 to chapter 50 in Genesis. It's not a big commitment. Go home, read it. Put it on your list of things to do. Turn off one 30-minute television show. Turn off the news for 30 minutes sometime. Read this story. Look at the pieces, the parts, the details, the astounding amount of experience of these people as they experience God alive in their lives. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. These are incredible stories. They're amazing. They've got all kinds of turns and twists and things in them. They're unbelievably interesting. They're masterpieces. You formulated the real life stories and then even the, the literature to carry these stories along verbally and eventually as people wrote them down. Thank you for these stories. Thank you in a world where we are now, where experience is everything, that we can go back and look at real stories with real experiences in them and not just have to come up with a few doctrinal ideas and concepts, but real, live, practical stuff. We honor you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, if you would come, please.